Welcome to Honey and Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. My name is Robin Robertson, and I am the host and creator of the show. I just want to start with a quick thank you, as always, to everyone that supports the show, who offers feedback, comments, as well as those who support the show through Patreon um, to help us grow and get better, and those who send in your comments and reviews. I really, really appreciate it, and it is such a huge help. And yes, if you found value through the show, I do recommend a great way to give back is through Patreon. You can find our Patreon link on the website or also in the show notes, patreon.com slash honey, I'm homeschooling the kids. And if Patreon just is not your thing and or even at this time period right now, a great way to help support the show is just by leaving a review, going into iTunes, rating and leaving a comment. And that is a great way to help our show grow and to get seen and heard. So thank you very much. So this episode, I have Golda David on the show. Golda, I actually know personally. She is a teacher, a a parent. She's a single mom. She works full time. She's also a former school principal. And really what's special is she's our family's local homeschool facilitator. So I live in Alberta, Canada, and here in Alberta, every homeschooling or unschooling family must register as a homeschooling family with the government. And you do so by registering through a school board that is a school board of your choice. So it doesn't have to be a local school board, the local to your area. It can be a private school board or public school board anywhere within the province of Alberta. And once you register, you actually have a homeschool facilitator that's assigned to you or that you can choose depending on the board. And that homeschool facilitator is your communication conduit between your family and the government and sometimes between a specific school that you might be working with. The requirement for Alberta education is that they must be a certified teacher in order order to hold that position. So to give a little background, a few years ago, a few years ago, I became the local school board trustee for my area school division, public school division. And being on the board, we've worked to offer a fantastic home education extension as part of this public school division. And this is actually an anomaly in this province. Um, Many private school boards offer homeschooling, um, but not many public do. So, you know, there's a big push to sometimes discrediting homeschooling, but on the other side, our division has seen it as an opportunity uh, to offer fantastic choice and support in education that is not always available to some. So I've been really proud and happy that we've been able to do this and help advocate for um, unique styles of learning within the public public education system. 
So it's been work. It's sometimes an uphill journey. Uh, The biggest thing is changing fixed mindsets and doing something different from the crowd. I mean, hell, it's, it's enough that there's an unschooling mom on a public school board, right? But the great thing is that we have many different diverse voices and opinions on our specific board, and we all come together to, I think, to really be forward thinkers in education. So Golda is the teacher that we hired to be the homeschool facilitator for our area. And she is fantastic. And she's been able to create a great program that offers support, access to some amazing resources that before only school communities were able to access. Now the homeschoolers are able to access as well some great activities and activity days, a broader learning community, and a chance to build greater connection. And it's also been a chance to start bridging a better gap, bridging the gap between the school community and the homeschooling community. So this is my interview with Golda. It has great value because she comes from such a rich experience of working in out-of-the-box school environments, which she talks quite a bit about, as well as the traditional background and self-directed learning, which she is a huge advocate of. Uh, I had asked for questions to my patrons and as well later on to a few others on Instagram who'd want to send in questions. I was still getting questions as the interview was going on. So we tried our best to address all the questions that we received. Thank you very much for sending them in because there were still some after we were done. Um, Golda actually, we took a couple of those other ones and we just Golda answered them separately. And so that is a little bonus segment to the episode. I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback and enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. I'm your host, Robin Robertson. And today we have a special episode. I'm excited to have Golda David on the show. Golda is um, someone who's going to give wonderful insight to this conversation. I'm excited to have her on because one, I know her personally and she is a wonderful person. We have, we work together in a certain sort of way we can talk about a little bit more. Um, She is also our family's homeschool facilitator and Golda is, I mean, I'm going to let you talk more about yourself, but she's an unschooling parent herself, teacher, ex-principal, uh, there's so many, every time I speak with her, there's something new that I learn about her that surprises me. So Golda, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. As Robin said, I'm a homeschooling mom to an 11 year old boy. Um, I've been doing that for, uh, almost, well, two years now. I took him out in the middle of grade three, uh, of the school that I was the principal of actually. Uh, I've been 14 years an educator. Uh, I was a waitress before that, <laughs> which becomes important later on. And two years, I was a I was a principal for two years. I've had a really diverse career. Actually, I took two years off, kind of in the middle of my uh, of my teaching career, and became a professional house painter because I had become disillusioned with education. So that was part of my journey. And I've taught in a a wide array of places. I started off in a small Inuit village in northern Quebec and taught there. And I've taught in a youth prison and a Chinese international school. And I've taught on First Nations reservations and I've taught in public schools. So I've I've had quite an interesting career. Yeah, very interesting career. <laughs> so I thought we can begin with um, our first, my first question for you. 
So each family and person that joins me on the show has a unique learning journey. And that's what I always want to show and represent that even though this may be called one general path, it's not because it's unique to each person's experiences and um, knowledge and where they are in their, their present day life and where their family is as well. And their learning journey is based on a framework of ideas, usually in beliefs and values, whether we realize it or not, but that's usually our why and why we do things and our, um, you know, the power behind our decisions. And usually it's around learning and self-expression and how we choose to live our lives. So my question is, you are a public school teacher. You have been a principal as well in a public school. You have other diverse backgrounds as well in education, and you're also an unschooling mom, and you're a single mom too. So how do you go from being a public school teacher, a public school principal, to an unschooling parent? That to me, it seems like a very big transition. (laughs) What happened to you? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. (laughs) Let me first start off by saying that I actually was always kind of an out-of-the-box thinker when it came to education. And I think part of the reason was because I started off quite late in my life, like I was 27 when I went to university. Before that, I had been a waitress and had worked in retail and things like that. And the reason that that's important is because when I became a teacher, I was in my 30s. And so I had quite a bit of life experience. And I was always I was always kind of climbing in my life. I always wanted to do more. I did learn more things. Learning was like a big focus of my life. I figured everything was about that. And so I started off in my early 30s as a teacher, and I didn't start off like most people did uh, in a a public school in a city. I started off in a small Inuit village where there was fly-in only uh, with 350 students, or 350 people, sorry. And and so I think some of my experiences already made me uh, an out-of-the-box thinker when it came to education. There were specific challenges up there in my very first year. Um, like when we flew in, we were given a week's a week worth of uh, orientation, for example. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that orientation, our two or three hours worth of pedagogy that we were taught in in each of the days that we had orientation, was actually the curriculum, and it wasn't written down anywhere else. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. When I got up to the community, uh, there were no textbooks, there were no written curriculum, and so I had to. I and there was no, there was nothing <laughs> like I had to teach what I thought was the right thing. Wow! And we were going to get a, a a visit from our pedagogical counselor, but mine wasn't coming till October, and I think that made me think really differently about education right from the very first year because I had to decide what to teach. So I had to think about what was important to teach. And I think that translates very well, actually, in 15 years later where I'm, or, or 16 years later where I'm looking at what, what is important to teach and what is, what is important for kids to learn. So did you choose, like, how did you get, choose to go there of all places? How did you end up there of all places? So, uh, when I was at Teachers College in uh, London, Ontario, uh, there was a job fair 
there for all the new teachers. And I happened to be a certified, I was about to become a certified physics teacher. So physics teachers were highly in demand at the time. I wasn't really a physics teacher. I'd taken a few physics classes, but they, they gave me that certification. (laughs) Anyway, I was a history major with some, you know, a minor in physics, but anyway, (laughs) um, but so I walked around that job fair fairly confident that I was going to get a job uh, because they were they were recruiting us really, it seemed really easy. So Toronto was recruiting physics teachers and everybody wanted physics teachers. And But I got to this table with the Katowic school board and I sat there for probably an hour and I just listened to them speak and I knew I wanted to go there. What was it about the school board that drew you to them? I think it was my sense of adventure. That's part of it. Yeah. But I also think that the lady who was speaking was very much like me. She was a single mother who had a daughter around the same age when she went up there as my daughter was. She was six. My daughter was six at the time. And she and she, the way that she spoke about it was very, um, like not magical, but it was very like, this is a a good, see, the reason I became a teacher from a waitress is because I wanted to do something for the social good. Mm. I wanted to change what I did because I wanted to feel like I had accomplished something. And I I was imagining myself at 40, uh, still waitressing. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Not that waitressing is a bad job. It's very noble, but I, I, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to, uh, make some kind of change in the world and and here's this woman talking about how I could do it. Mm. And I think one of the compelling things about teaching up in the North was that you could make a big change in a very small amount of time. Um, you could, if if you developed effective relationships, you could you could change the fate of communities. It was like it, especially as a principal. Not that I ever was one up there, but I could see that one individual person could change the trajectory of lots of different people in a community like that, because that's how small communities are, especially isolated ones. And so I went up there and we had no internet the first year I was there because it hadn't come up there yet. Um, we had no cell phones, of course, because that wasn't really even a thing down south yet. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no giving up any cell phones or anything like the second time I went up there. Um, and there was uh, two grocery stores and there was no restaurants. And so and I had a bunch of kids in grade eight and nine who didn't want to be there. Mm. And so I had to think of ways to make it relevant to them, which is I had read books about it. I read a book called uh, Teaching in a Cold and Windy Place. I can't remember the author's name, but she was she was talking about how about thematic teaching and, and how it had to be relevant to Inuit people. Right. I found out there that you can't you can't just teach anything and you can't teach from the provincial curriculum because we were using Quebec's curriculum because some of the things that are up there are not relevant to the kids you know that that you can't talk for example about gardening they don't even know what a garden is (laughs) you can't talk about buses there are no buses except for the school bus (laughs) taxis (laughs) what is that (laughs) so if you write a test or something you can't have those things in it so I guess right from the beginning I tried out of the box ways of thinking uh, for example, I one one day as in the spring, I could see that the kids were really antsy, and the Inuit are very outside based people, 
and they spend a lot of their time outdoors and they're really connected with nature. And I could see that being in a building was very almost painful for those mm -hmm. kids. So I took, I said, let's go. Uh, we'll still be learning math, but we're going to go do it on the beach. And I used a rock and my chalk because we had chalkboards. <laughs> we had chalk on the rocks and they had their papers and they were sitting outside and they calmed right down. And so there was lots of things like that. We we went and did a lot of things outside because I knew that they needed that in order to learn. And so right from the beginning of my career, I had to start, I had to question what we did in schools. Now, that didn't last forever because when I got to the public school system, it's very rigid, actually. Yeah. So even though I was thinking in a different way, nobody else was. <laughs> and I had to, I guess I had to push a bit. So one of the things I did, for example, in one of my last years of teaching in the classroom was try a different assessment method. It went over pretty much like a lead balloon, but it was very, I think it was very creative. <laughs> what was the, if you could talk a little bit about the, what was the assessment method? <laughs> so I was teaching a, a grade 12 social studies class at a college level, a college entry level, and I decided that they could be assessed any way that they wanted to. So there was four different major units that they had to like have it, but they could show me any way that they wanted mm -hmm. that they had learned the material. Yeah. And I believe one of the students said, why are you doing this to us? <laughs> <laughs> In our 12th year of school. <laughs> and so, uh, like I said, it went over like a lead balloon, but it was actually quite a brilliant plan, I believe. <laughs> so, uh, I I always like to try new things right from the beginning, and that's probably different. I know I never thought of education in a very rigid way right from the beginning. So I and I never even through uh, my career I had to think of ways to get around because I was always putting myself in fairly extreme situations, like mm. moving to China and deciding to try project based learning, <laughs> which again <laughs> led balloon. <laughs> um. I think when I started to look at administrative work, I was in China and I had tried these different things like project-based learning and the administrators that were evaluating me suggested I go into administration and I thought, no way, I'm not going there. There's going to be more work for not very much money, so why would I do that? But Why, why, why did they suggest that you go into administrative work? What was their reasoning behind the push? Because administrators have to be out-of-the-box thinkers and they have to be able to be creative about solving problems, in, especially in the education system. And so I was, I was told to try it for a year, and I did. And I realized at the time that if you were an administrator, and I was a head teacher at the time or an administrative intern, um, they, that you could really affect change in a school because you could affect how the teachers worked, which is really what compelled me to go into administrative work in the end. Um, I realized that I could, like a lot of my principals, could motivate me to be better at what I did. I went into my master's degree believing that I wanted to do that, like to help teachers get better at what they're doing and help support them because um, non-supportive principles can destroy a teacher's confidence within months. And 
a principal who does not build teachers up tears an entire school down. And I knew I could be one of the ones that built people up because I, I was kind of good at that when my job as an intern. Um, so I started taking my master's degree and that's really when it, when my whole opinion about education changed because I, I knew nothing about home education when I started my master's degree in education. And in my first year, I took a, a course called Decolonizing Education and read a book by Marie Batiste about decolonizing education. Mm-hmm. I even have a website, a webpage that I explored that topic. I have a blog post and everything. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to say that all these wonderful references I'll put in the show notes, including your website page that you you have as Weebly on Weebly, right? So that will be included in the show notes too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the course I took was all about how the system was failing Aboriginal students, and, and it is very much so. And we know that from the statistics about who passes exams and who, who graduates high school and everything. And I knew right from the beginning of my career when I went into Aboriginal education that that was true because I had to work very hard at making the content that I was teaching relevant to the Inuit kids and it was not relevant <laughs> for the most part, even though I tried. And when I was in China, I remember when I, when I introduced the project-based learning and, I, and the principal asked me why I'd done it, I said, because if you were at a First Nations school, you would try these things because they're best practice. So why aren't they best practice for the kids in China? And he said for me, even though there was a lot of criticism of the project-based learning, he said for me to stay the course because in the end, the uh, the outcome would be the important thing. And and by the end of my by by the end of my project based learning, so I had a um, a department head at the time in social studies tell me I could not do it. Okay. So I had to get special permission from the from the principal to do it. And they were very uh, they were very reluctant to believe that it would work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and after the first semester of trying project-based learning, when my test scores were higher than everybody else's, they actually had people visiting my classroom to try and copy what I was doing Mm. because it works. So best practice for Aboriginal kids is best practice for everybody because they, they are at the most risk. So if you can implement what you would implement in a school like that, you can probably change the outcome for a lot of people, not, not everybody. So I'm looking at this course on Aboriginal education, and I know that best practice is best practice for everybody. And it's basically saying that the education system is not relevant and it's not helpful. And so I... So sorry, your discourse, like the one with the book on decolonizing education with, is it Marie or Maria Batiste? Batiste. Marie Batiste. Okay, that's all. Sorry, I, I wasn't sure, so I just wanted to to be sure. Um, that course was the one that was saying that it wasn't that education is not relevant or true. Or was that the one? Yeah, it was. It was saying that there's a lot of issues in education that need to be resolved in order for um, for, for it to be relevant for kids, okay. especially in Aboriginal communities. And so we had, uh, we actually, the assessment method that I tried in that grade grade 12 class was actually came from this course because we were allowed to show that we understood the material in any way we, that we could. Right. So, mm-hmm. so 
the reason I say that is because that website I wrote was not written in the you know, the five months that I took the course, it was probably written in the last two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) So I I knew what would happen in that class, (laughs) social studies. (laughs) Anyway, part of uh, the non-mandatory reading list. So we had a reading list that we could choose from because our professor wanted us to guide our own learning, which was a really interesting approach for a professor in university. And one of the books on there was John Taylor Gatto's book um, about... D- uh, Dumbing Us Down. Dumbing Us Down, that's right, yeah. I also read uh, books by John Holt and Yvonne Illich. Mm-hmm. Yvonne Illich writes books about de-schooling society and basically the idea that there's a cult of the experts and that not you don't have to be an expert and do, do certain things. You don't have to be an expert to know that you're sick. Or, or what to do to make yourself better in some cases. You don't need to be an expert to teach. You don't have to be an expert to do a lot of the things that we consider to be expert-driven areas of yeah. our lives. So I, I started, and it was a shock to my system. I had been a teacher for a long time at this point, and I thought I was doing the right thing. And John Taylor Gatto was telling me that I was not. And it was it was hard, actually. I went to school those days as a teacher, and I'm doing these things, and I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> this is exactly what he was talking about. So the blog, actually, on that Weebly site talks about the cognitive dissonance that I experienced during that time. So I, I, had, I had a real struggle um, coming to terms with the idea that the school system was harmful for kids. And my reality at the same time was not matching my new inner philosophy that was forming. And it was really hard. Um, So actually, as I was taking courses, I became a principal because I had to, and I had to make a decision to whether or not to stay in the education system at the time, because I really questioned whether or not that was a good idea. I, I thought maybe I should just leave and go and do something else. I mean, I have done that before. So, um, but I, I, I decided I was going to, stay in the system and I was going to try to change it. Mm. And uh, so I I was starting to think that our society wasn't even really well served by the system of schooling that we have and that it was kind of brainwashing people into becoming compliant and maybe even debt slaves (laughs) instead of actually um, becoming thinking, creative human beings that could cre- create uh, solutions to some of the really big problems that we have in our lo- in our society today. And some of what I was reading at the time was actually quite in line with the things that I had seen as a teacher in the ten years I'd taught previously. So it was really hard for me to go to work every day. Uh, so here I am now. I'm a principal. I'm going to change the system from the inside, <laughs> and I was going to push for change and push for reform. <laughs> and I was going to speak against the system as a, as a person with the newly formed authority of a principal who people think are really smart for some reason. <laughs> and I found out very quickly that you cannot do that. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear from a principal that there's something wrong with the education system. <laughs> um, so uh, the school uh, a couple of years later, the school division I was working for then, I had been speaking quite freely about these things and these ideas. 
And my son at the same time had become ill with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I took him out of school in the middle of the year. And I had been quite vocal about uh, alternative education and how we should change things in schools. And I spoke very strongly against standardized testing and and uh, that wasn't very popular, but I was, yeah, I was. Uh, I was going to ask how that went over, especially as a principal of a school that your son was in, because you have two kids, an older daughter and a son who is right now he's eleven. Um, how that went over for the school community that you decided to remove him from the place that you were essentially in charge of. I think if there were people that disagreed in the school building, they didn't say anything to me, but I could. And I think his illness was quite obvious by the time I took him out. So it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise that he had to leave. I mean, we were, we, I was told by a therapist to take him out of school. So it was justifiable, but it was, it wasn't, it was kind of a, a saying that the school system was not right for my son. And so I had already been speaking out, especially to upper administration at the school division. And I had also been talking about this for a couple of years. So at the end of the year, they they said, we have a, a different job for you if you want. <laughs> Would you like to be the home education facilitator for our, or lead facilitator for our division? And so that's kind of how I came to be what I am now. Because uh, in that year, I had to learn an awful lot about home education very quickly because I had to start the program that September and they pulled me out of my school that I was the principal of in about, about May, I think. Okay. And so I did a lot of research and, and things like that about how the system worked in Alberta so that I was prepared in September to start with my new job. So I, I that's kind of my journey from first year teacher to now home education coordinator and facilitator for a, a public school division here. So I want to just ask a few questions as well for clarity for anyone that's not from this area, because we live in Alberta and we have listeners from all over the world. So what is a home education facilitator within a public school system? What, what does that look like? What does your job entail? Why do we have that here in Alberta? So I think the home education system in Al- in Alberta is such that if you're home educating your child and it's a parent-directed program, you're required to register with a school, whether it's a pu- public school or a private school, it doesn't matter. But the home education facilitator has to be a certified teacher and they're required to do f- two home visits a year. The first visit is supposed to be um, to come up and help form a home education plan for the rest of the year and um, to make sure that they ha- are, are well-resourced to know to, where to find things and things like that. And we have lots of conversations about how kids learn and what's maybe best for the children in that particular household. And then at the end of the year, we do the second home visit, and we I go in and I, and I help them. Like I find, I, I see that I have to write a report for the government, but it's basically me going in say, saying what what did you actually do with the plan because nobody's going to do everything it's that's impossible not teachers don't even do that um and we talk about what went well and what went wrong um and i think the real purpose behind that is feedback because no matter who you are and how great you are 
you need feedback uh, from somebody. And I think a lot of people have that. They have school co-ops and things like that, but not everybody has that. And so I think the feedback might be helpful to a lot of people. And I think the people that choose a public school division often enjoy the increased amount of resources that they can get. And so just to let everyone know as well that, and so this is how Golda and I were introduced. She is our family homeschool facilitator. And this first year, we joined their public school board, our local public school board. Um, Before that, we had been with the private uh, school instead that facilitated our homeschool. As a homeschooler, homeschooling family in Alberta, you do need to register with the government, even as unschoolers, which we are, and they still, you know, that's still supported. Golda supports our unschooling environment. She herself is um, an unschooling parent as well, Um, but... A couple few years ago, I joined the school board. I uh, ran for public school board trustee, so I am also a public school board trustee on that school board. And um, as I think most people know, I'm a strong advocate for self-directed learning and alternative education. And it was it's something that I see that in our environment in Alberta, there's an opportunity. It's, there was a big separation happening, and there was a lack of communication and understanding when there didn't have to be. And I, I know, you know, especially when you were talking about when you started reading about John Taylor Gatto, and it was a bit confronting for you as an educator to hear those things and to um, be, I don't know, like a bit fearful or worried that you are a cause of certain things or contributing to certain things that are not always um, uplifting for children and for, and for students. So I know it can be a bit, um, between families who are homeschooling and educators, there can be that block because I think a lot of times when people say, well, why are, why are we being questioned? I think sometimes just our own actions and what we're doing questions others, teachers, for example, who have been in a career all their life and have chosen a course of action. And all of a sudden, I think just the very way we're choosing to do things questions their choices. But you have something to say. Continue. (laughs) I was going to say that uh, some of this, so I've had conversations with educators who absolutely do not agree with what I'm doing. And I I had one just at our teachers convention two weeks ago, actually. And I I have to say, I think it's emotional for them. They they don't want to hear that what they're doing is wrong, and they absolutely and they so they react emotionally and they are they're offended because they they're deep they're afraid. And I think when I say things like so, I was having a conversation with a, another teacher at the teachers' convention, and she she was in a position where she was a vendor, so she didn't want to argue too much, but she said. She knew of a person who had homeschooled their daughter and her their daughter didn't do very well because she couldn't read as well as she should by grade 12 and she couldn't do basic math. And I said, but a lot of kids graduate from high school in our system like that too. And her face kind of dropped like, oh yeah. <laughs> but for her, it was an emotional reaction where she's like, no, <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> So that's what I wanted to say is that it's an emotional reaction. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes when even it can be an emotional reaction for homeschoolers or unschoolers that question that way because you want to put up a defense instead of maybe understanding a little bit more where the other person is coming from. So, So many times I think we say things out of fear and uncertainty to protect ourselves instead of just immediately being open 
to uh, what's being said or, or other things around us as well. So um, being on the board, I am really proud to say that our public school board, are, you know, the board has been really open. They welcomed the homeschooling and supporting it because every school can do so. There's no mandate that says schools cannot, whether you're public, private, or whatever, can support homeschooling. You can in this province, uh, but there's just some unwritten word or something, I don't know, that some schools feel that they can't. Um, but our school board jumped on and said, yes, we will we'll be a school board that provides facilitation and support for homeschoolers in our area, and that's what we've been doing this past year, and Golda runs the program, and she's a fantastic facilitator and gives fantastic support and encouragement and is a great advocate for homeschoolers in this area and everywhere and uh, for parents in doing what they're doing and she's a great representative as well so I'm really appreciative of the work that you do I'm really happy and proud of it too and yeah so that's that's our that's our connection so I think my job's really interesting because when I was a school principal remember I said that I was speaking quite openly about, again, standardized testing and things like that, but I could never do it publicly. I would do that to some teachers and I would talk to our upper administrators, our assistant superintendents and things like that about my opinions and my research that I had done, not just my opinion based on nothing, but actual research <laughs> I had done. And I, but I couldn't really go out to the public and say that. And now I can say to anybody, <laughs> I think that there's a problem with schooling and they can't say anything because that's my job. <laughs> I didn't say that Golda wasn't going to be controversial for some, <laughs> because it does and makes them uncomfortable, let's be honest, and um, upsets. I think just you and I upset some people. Um, yeah. Just the fact that we are vocal and that we um, are just here doing our thing. <laughs> We're not trying to <laughs> to be cruel or anything about it, but just living our life and supporting everyone's choices, really, because we do have the power of choice. Still, thankfully, um, we do have that. So, so I was actually, the next question I was going to ask you, unless you have anything else to add right now. No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that ne you've actually answered quite a bit of it. Um, and I was going to ask, you know, part of it was how you went from home educating. Because I think sometimes what happens is for many of us, we start homeschooling and we replicate school at home. And we think that's what it is. We're going to take school and we're going to put it in our home. And there's always a big surprise, I find, almost always for families when they realize, oh, that doesn't really work. That's not, it's not school just done in your home. It, it doesn't, there's so many other factors that come into play that it just doesn't really mesh so well. Um, so how did you make the shift from homeschooling, school at home, to unschooling? And as, yeah, was it, was it difficult for you? Yeah, I'd say in the first year, last year, I I was not support like I had never been not supportive or in opposition to homeschooling. Um even even 14 years ago when I started and I could easily say that uh I can see why homeschooling would be better because there's a body of research to support it. 
But when I first heard about unschooling, I thought it was a little bit crazy, very hippie-ish, yeah. <laughs> kind of like I'm from BC. Maybe that <laughs> British Columbia is kind of a, a place where there is thought to be a lot of hippies. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that that's kind of what it reminded me of is is a, a commune type <laughs> situation. Yeah. And I, and, and the reaction of the people in my school division that had hired me for this job with the first one, the first school division was, uh, very negative as well. Um, and so I could say that I was supportive of homeschooling, but not unschooling last year. So my, my son, when he start, when we started was, was doing the school at home thing. I, I was the teacher, but he was using, uh, Alberta distance learning materials, and I found out quite quickly that not only is the the curriculum fairly disjointed. I don't want to I don't want to criticize too much. I know how hard it is to write curriculum, but I do think that there's it's uh, it's not it doesn't lead to expertise, shall we say? So I think it was a bit disjointed, and and it was also very short. I found out that. In an hour and a half a day, we could do what they're doing for six hours at school. So I was, so I, I actually departed probably halfway through the year last year to a more parent directed programming because I thought it was better. And I, of course, naturally leaned towards him doing what he was interested in because if he wasn't interested, it was almost impossible to get him to do it. And he, he also, his brain was working differently because he had a traumatic stress disorder. So he had a he had a, a high stress, easily stressed level, and so your brain doesn't work the same way. So I started leaning towards that, and it wasn't actually until your podcast <laughs> I listened to your podcast that I really started to question what I thought unschooling was. And so when I was when I was looking, and, and then I read Peter Gray's book, and when Carrie McDonald's book came out, and I think I was fairly convinced by the end of that that I was probably more of an unschooler than I thought. <laughs> and so now I, I do support people who are doing the traditional homeschooling. There is there is quite a lot of people who feel a lot more comfortable with that than unschooling. Yeah. But uh, I also support people who are unschooling because I, and I, I'll, I'll be honest, I think it's a superior way to educate a, a child. And I think this is the difference if you if you use a package curriculum there's nothing wrong with that and it's and it's way more comfortable and it looks a lot more like learning in the way that we think learning happens in in school in a schoolish way but um when parents and children when children really take control of their own education something different happens about how deep they learn things and how much they learn because i don't i i question now what learning actually is um, if you if you take a course and then you take a test and you do well on the test and then you forget it in a month, is it learning? Is it learning? Yeah. And if that's all we're doing is just regurgitating things and then forgetting them a month later or a week later, what is that? That's that's not that's not anything that's useful in our in our society. But if you take a child and they decide that they want to learn how to build something or or do something or learn a language and then they they remember it a year from now because they wanted to, I think that's learning. So I started to question everything about what we do in schools, even to a greater degree than I had before, based on those unschooling principles. Mm. You know, it's I have to ask the question. <laughs> uh, why do we, because I think, you know, 
you're also not the first educator who said that as well. And I know even sometimes for those who maybe don't support homeschooling or unschooling, I've also had others who have said, you know what, what you guys are doing with your kids is real learning. And, you know, I, I, I knew a teacher who had said, I told my friends to go to your Instagram to see the examples of what you guys are doing because that's what learning is. And I thought, well, you know, and I've got that more than once. I thought if educators as well believe that, which I know actually many do, why aren't we doing more of it then in the school system? Why is it still rote memorization, take the test, take your achievement exam, pass on to the next grade, then do the same rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat every year, limit the amount of activities you do and exploration and things like that. Why are we still continuing that? Because it's easier to quantify. That's the simple answer. You can you can get from a test, a standardized test, you can get a number. And from that number, you can uh, governments can say we're being transparent and, and teachers are being held accountable. And I think that's it's a political thing as well as uh, parents want to see that kind of learning because that's what they've done. Our society's idea of learning needs to change in general, not just... Uh, I think, and I think how they're going to change is they're going to see it. Like, I think part of the strength of our program is that people are going to see it there right now. And that actually might change education in the long run too, because if they see that it's real learning and if they see that there's another way to do it, maybe they will. (laughs) But right now, everybody still thinks of, of sitting at a desk for eight hours or whatever and writing things down is the only way to learn something. If they think of it that way, then they won't, they won't think any other way because they won't see anything else. Um, and so I think it's that quantification and it's also kind of a cultural norm that's, and it's going to be really hard to overcome that. Uh, but I think it can be done over time with more and more people trying different methods of, of educating their child. I actually used to think that Aboriginal education was going to be where the change came from mm. because you had to be, if you were going to be a good educator in the Aboriginal schools, you had to be an out-of-the-box thinker. You had to try different things. And I, th- I always thought that that was kind of going to be where things changed. And, and there have been examples of things changing, mm-hmm. like with the I, uh, I Count High School in BC. Right. A lot of the learning now are going towards land-based learning and things like that, which is the natural natural learning style and learning method. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about your time up north and um, how I thought about when you said so many of the kids, they were just not happy to be there. And then you took them outside because, you know, outside is life, especially for so many Inuit First Nations cultures. And it, it made me think of actually Superman. And in the way that, in a way, and I mean, obviously, for with our Canadian history, with our history of residential schools, and the point of having residential schools that, in so many ways, the classroom is like the kryptonite. And you know that it's the kryptonite that is going to depower everybody who is Superman that goes into those classrooms. And nature is their strength that's getting away from the kryptonite, yet we continuously encourage and force the kryptonite upon them when, you know, there's so many examples of students flourishing outside of the kryptonite, outside of that classroom and being out in nature, doing land-based learning, going, you know, going out with their elders for months at a time, or, you know, I've heard some fantastic examples as well, but um, yeah, 
I could see how, you know, the hope would be that we go to more towards that style of learning, but we'll see. I think change is slowly happening, but um, how long it's going to take, I'm not too sure. Yeah, I agree. It's it's gonna it's gonna take some time. Although it's happening, I mean, twelve thousand people this year home educating their children in Alberta, for for example, and we know that because they're registered here. Um, in other provinces, they do, like Ontario, they don't require registration, so their numbers are a lot less. But it's because people don't have to register their kids in anything. In anything, they can just take them out and okay. and do what what they want. So I think I think the numbers are quite a lot higher. We also see schools popping up across the country and in the states that are self directed learning and mm-hmm. forest schools and things that are outside in nature. So I think it's. Even again, it's best practice for everybody if it's best practice for our First Nations and Inuit and Metis students and children. And I, 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 I think it's interesting that you compared it to kryptonite because when I think back, I think that's exactly what it was. <laughs> and uh, it's and and they're still doing it, and it's really hard to overcome up there. And in in lots of places because they're so brainwashed to believe that that is the only way that you can get anywhere in life, even though, especially up north, all evidence points to the contrary, because people without a grade 12 education do very well in communities where you can become a hunter if that's what your, if that's what your thing is, and you don't need anything for that, (laughs) or you can become, uh, you know, and a hunter there means that you hunt for the entire community. You're one of those people that are, are part of the food chain supply up there. So uh, it's it's quite different. I know when Xander did, a couple of years ago, he did a trip up north with a friend on a motorbike, and he told me about one of the communities, and they had showed them they have their community storage, where the hunters, they store, the, the community shares, like, underground, because obviously in our Canadian north, it's quite, I mean, we're on the Arctic Circle. <laughs> so, you know, they have their underground storage where the community stores their meat, and everyone has the community meat that's found in there. It's not a personal fridge that you just keep on your own, but it's all the shared storage there, which is pretty cool. It's very, uh, you know, it's a communal way of living in that way. Okay, so we'll continue on. I know we're already covering a lot of the questions coming up as well. So now you are unschooling, you're still working within the public school system, but there's a few other factors, I think. And now you've spoken with me a lot about it, that there's still, like everyone else, there's still those obstacles, there's still those doubts, there's still those questions that come up. Just because, you know, you have a lot of experience and knowledge and information and access, but yet you still have some of those questions and fears. So I wanted to ask you what were some of your personal biggest obstacles to unschooling and or home educating? And there, I broke it down into a few um, kind of areas. One I know, because I've also had a few questions about this as well. You're a single mom and a single mom that unschools. In that area, what has been... Is, has there been obstacles? Has it been a little bit more different? Or do you just, I mean, it's life, you just go with the flow? Um, I think the main obstacle for most people is, if, if you're a single parent, is being able to work from home. And I was really lucky to get this job where I work from home because that obstacle is gone. The problem with that is that I'm a bit of a workaholic. <laughs> so I find myself uh, trying, struggling to find balance in my own life, like between work and life, because 
if I want my program to be successful, I pretty much have to take phone calls when they come, no matter what time they are. I, although I have a cutoff of 9.30, by the way, <laughs> for anybody out there in Alberta. <laughs> um, but I find it, so I find it hard because I'm trying to find this work-life balance and I, it's really hard um, because of the workaholic thing. <laughs> um, and I think, I, 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 but I do still feel lucky because I have... Um, because I get to work from home. My son comes to me with me to most of the facilitator visits. So he gets to socialize with lots of different kids. And, uh, and he's, he's, uh, he's kind of charming sometimes. So they don't mind him to be there most of the time. Uh, so I guess that's my main struggle as a, a single parent. Okay. Okay. So does the balance look different for you each day, each month and each week? You just, you take it and adapt or, cause I know sometimes people are like, well, can you lay out how I can create a schedule in order to homeschool and work from home? I kind of gave up on the schedule thing a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I can't. And then every time I think I have it all down pat, I decide I'm going to do a different project. And so then it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's going to take quite a few hours. So maybe I'm not going to have a work-life balance after all. <laughs> um, so I, I'd say there's no set schedule. My son has chores because we live on a small hobby farm. And he has, I do ask him to do math. I, I, I signed him up to a math program because I find it really hard to think of learning basic math without some kind of compulsion. And I know that's <laughs> wrong, but I have to, I have to, I had to compromise with myself on that one. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, we talk about school having hard and fast rules and then you say, oh, well, it's the unschooling community. But then all of a sudden there's these hard and fast rules that to be an unschooler, to be a homeschooler, you have to do this. And it's, you know, again, I think it's the beauty of it is that you can make it your own. And I think that's the important side of it is that, you know, if you want to do math and you find a great math program that works well for your family, then yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, if you, if there's something else that works and maybe it looks schooly, that's okay. If that works for your family, that's what, I think that's what that home educating, unschooling, natural learning is all about because you can use all those different methods. You don't have to just stick to one thing. So, yeah, good on you. I think it's good. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, as a public school educator and doing something that's so out of the ordinary, out of the box, you know, you lots of times you have this box that you're given, so it's easy to stay within that box structure and lines and compartments, but you don't. So, has there been struggle for you on that? <laughs> Have you ever walked into a room and said something to somebody and everybody stops talking and you can hear a pin drop? <laughs> That's like my life now. <laughs> I'm just joking. I, I, I do get, so I, it's like walking between worlds. I, I ran into somebody who works in the school system as a, as a support worker in, uh, that I used to work with in a school around this area the other day in the grocery store. And I started talking about my new job and they were, and they looked at each other and I knew that they, I was like, oh no, here we go. Yeah, they were, they were very nice about it, but they did not agree with what I was doing. I could tell. And I, and I, nothing I said was going to change their mind. 
So I guess it's like walking between two worlds because I am working for a public school division and I do have to support. I just, so uh, some people disagree with what I'm doing because they think I should be supporting public education. Mm -hmm. And what I've been saying right from the beginning is that this should be part of public education. We should be supporting this alternative method of education in a better way, in a more comprehensive way. This is going to change things and for the better for everybody in the end. Mm -hmm. So I think it should be public education. And so I go to schools because I meet with people at schools sometimes, or I or I go to administrative meetings because I'm not a principal, but I'm considered to be an administrator. I'm also part of the essential admin team. Uh, so I go to all these administrative meetings where uh, I I talk to people who are high, like higher up in the education field, I guess. And it's like, and everyone, like a lot of those meetings, I sit there and I disagree with. So when we're talking about standardized testing, for example, as me biting my tongue. Uh, And not really, because if I get people alone, I will talk about it. But it's very much like that cognitive dissonance that I I was at the beginning where I can, but I can see both sides now. I, I see that people in the education system are doing their very best to work within the system that they're given. And it's not their fault. I, I actually hear that from parents a lot. They tried their best. They they were doing everything that they could to help my child, but it's not working. And now I am at an absolute loss as to what to do. Can you help me? So I I hear that a lot. So I know those people are working really hard to make it work, but it's the system itself that's the problem. So they're having, so I, I can see I can see that side and I can also see parents' side uh, seeing it from kind of the outside in and how they don't really understand a lot of the time how things work. Not everybody, but a lot of people don't really understand who makes decisions and why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I can see it from both sides. And I also, one of the, so you asked me what my struggle was and my struggle is not slipping back into old ways of thinking. So every time I'm at an administrative meeting or at some kind of meeting where they're talking about how people learn and what's the most important thing in education, I have to really check my, because I believed that at one point in time. So I have to really rethink everything that, (laughs) like I have to kind of stay on what I believe now because I feel like I was kind of brainwashed before and now I'm like reprogramming myself every day. (laughs) So I think that's one of my biggest struggles is that continuously trying to um, make sure that I, I stay the course or I, I, I'm clear about what my own beliefs are Mm -hmm. because I can be easily swayed sometimes if somebody makes a compelling argument or I start to slip back into a way of thinking that's not helpful. I understand that completely. I feel that, um, for me as well, in when I'm working and in meetings or planning meetings and things like that, it's easy to <clears throat> slip back into that old way of thinking. And especially when you're looking at like evaluations of like standardized testing is a huge one, right? Because it's also so big where we live. And yeah, I, I get the same thing as well on the outside of like my position is supporting public education. And it's the same when I'm also as well in meetings, I think, yes, I'm supporting kids. And, you know, if there comes a time where I have to support a public, something public over a kid's well-being, when they have an option or something would be better, then I don't feel like I would be doing my duty. 
than it because then I would be not choosing the well-being and the best thing for a child. So for me, that is my what I, what I am supporting. But I agree. I I feel that there are more than one way, and it should be offered to everyone. There should be more access, uh, alternative forms of education, self-directed learning. It doesn't have to stay just in one unique community. Everyone should be able to learn and have access to doing that. And also, if they don't want to do it at all, if it's just way too uncomfortable, then there's other traditional ways that you can do too, but have that available. But yeah, the struggle, the struggle's real on, am I, you know, the doubt, right? Is this, am I just crazy? Am I like going off on some, you know, is this really valuable? Am is I, this going to work? Am I going back to my hippie roots? Yeah, are you just going, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you go back to, yeah, well, there's, yes, it is, it is working and it's okay to be a hippie still. And yeah. <laughs> I get panicked sometimes every, every once in a while when I sit into one of those meetings and they're talking about something specific, like say the science curriculum or whatever, I start to think, am I teaching him enough science? Yes. Oh no. <laughs> what What if I'm not? What if he's not? So I, I, what if I'm, uh, what if he has to pay the price later? I wonder if my unschooling method is, is valid. Like how do we know for sure? Where's the quantification of data? Right. Right. Because there is none yet. <laughs> and so I've, even though I know that some kids find school awful and boring and painful, like my son did, even from kindergarten, he had the wiggle seat on the first day he went there. Um, he he always he always didn't like school. He liked the people in the school. Mm. He always liked his teacher. Uh, and he liked the kids mostly, but he didn't like the the method of schooling because he needed to be more autonomous and he couldn't be there. And so he found it very painful or emotionally painful to be at school. Also, he couldn't read until much later. So he had, he struggled. And so I, I find myself panicked sometimes thinking maybe I'm not doing enough. And so that, or guiding him enough or, you know, making sure that he's on, cause he will, <laughs> I, I, a lot of parents say, how do you make sure that they don't play video games all day. I'm one of those parents that struggles with that question. Yeah. So I do, I do have, if he would play video games all day, I've tried it actually for a month to see how would he do. <laughs> it was not good. <laughs> I want to hear more. <laughs> I tried it for a month to see what he would do. Uh, I let him choose everything every day, no matter, it could be anything. And, and he chose to play video games all day. And it wasn't just, I, I know that there's nothing wrong with that. I know a lot of people find success with that, but he, his particular personality makes that difficult for him because he gets really um, socially difficult afterwards. He, he, he does, once he starts disconnecting from real life people like he was, he finds it hard to be nice to people, right. <laughs> including me. So he, and he gets more argumentative and he has some real issues with that. So I think some kids can't do that all the time whenever they want. Some some kids do have to have limits and he's one of them. Mm. So I struggled with that too because in the unschooling community, um, you often think that that should be just, you'd let them do whatever they really are passionate about. And so to put limits on it is, is a tough call because like I, I'm an all or nothing thinker, so it's really hard to to go. Maybe there's a compromise here. Right. You can have this many hours a day. <laughs> but to add to that as well, I think what you also do well is you still has autonomy and a voice and a say. And I see you too. And 
you have good conversation and it's um, <clears throat> that analogy of um, you're a really good candle, how the power sharing could be in a remote control where one person has all the control and pushes all the buttons, or you can be a candle where you still hold power, but it's shared power. You both can have the light. And uh, I see that between the two of you and your interaction, uh, that he still has his voice and he still has autonomy and still has a say. And I think that an understanding, like he's an exceptionally bright person as well, and he still has, I think, understanding on um, the reasonings and why as well. So I think that makes a really big difference in that, and, and that's a driving force behind that as well. Well, that, that's actually really nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're never sure if you're doing the right thing when you're a parent, are you? Are you? <laughs> no, no that, that's exactly it. It's the learning every single day. Okay, so have you, how have you been able to work? So you've already described a lot of it. How you've been able to work through those obstacles that you've encountered? Can we talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, I guess uh, so for the balance uh, part, I always try to find it constantly. Sometimes I fail and sometimes I don't. There's days when I work too much and there's days where I don't work enough. Maybe I don't know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or I feel like I haven't worked enough. Um, For my inner struggles, I've talked with people about this a lot because uh, other people find that hard too. So with those ideals around unschooling and homeschooling, well, not homeschooling, uh, but I read a lot and I listen to podcasts like this one and I talk to a lot of people because of my job and I don't really, I don't really think that I could ever teach in a public school system again unless it was an alternative program because I do think that it's harmful for kids. And so I, I find that balance and I kind of try to stay, uh, stay reading and up to date with the newest ideas. And I do try to find research and data to support what I believe is true now. You know, I'm going to ask you, what ways do you find that school is harmful? Can you give some examples? Yeah, it's written uh, quite a bit in John Taylor Gatto's books, and uh, John Holt touches on it, uh, I think, right from the Bell system, where they could be getting in the zone and 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 actually experiencing some deeper learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bell rings and you automatically put your stuff away. You get up and you go to the next class. I think that's harmful. I think a lot of kids, actually, when I mentioned this to parents on the phone, when they first start talking about homeschooling, and I'd list the things that I think that they might resonate with them, that's actually a big one where they're like, you're right, because I hated that. <laughs> if I got into something and then I had to stop. Yeah. And so right from grade one, they start to realize that they can't really get very excited about anything because if they do, the bell's going to ring and it's going to be done. And and so they, they, I think they detach, people detach a little bit from the learning process because they have to, emotionally, it's painful to have to stop something that you're really into. Um, they also get the idea right from the start that they have no autonomy. They have no voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few, very few yeah. teachers. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> they don't. And and even if you have a very very good teacher who listens, they often. I mean, when you're managing thirty to forty students in a classroom, you really need them to just shut up and comply with what you told them to do. And so, and some kids do very well with that. They they're fine. But some kids really fight against it, and it and it's obviously quite harmful for them. They're very nature. They're in deep, deep inside of them says it's wrong, 
And so they, they're the type of kids that become leaders later on in communities if they overcome that programming that they're getting in school. Isn't that sad? <laughs> I, I know some of them that have become community leaders. I had one up north. I knew right away when I met her that she was going to be a leader someday because she could never, she could never just let me say something and it be true. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that kid. <laughs> she was great. <laughs> no, I, and I'm not being sarcastic. She was great. I, I told her when she was 13 that she was going to be a community leader, and now she is. So I think I think that's harmful, though. That that the school system could have really hurt that in her. We could we could have, if she had had different teachers, have completely you know, beat that out of her kind of, yeah. um, considering that she was in the kryptonite school to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to say this, I know how hard it is to manage a group of people. I know how, I know it's hard to manage a, a classroom full of kids. I know how hard it is to manage a school full of people, but I think that our standardization is harmful anyway. A lot of kids uh, exit our school system feeling stupid and their particular talents and abilities and skills are not appreciated and not recognized. And yet, and, and certain kids graduate from high school thinking that they're very, very smart and, and they are uh, in some things, but they are not good at other things and they're not recognizing that either. And I think that that idea that everybody should learn at the same pace, at the same time, the same things, um, no matter what they're good at and no matter what they are interested in is harmful. Mm. I also think that this is being evidenced by the growing anxiety and mental health issues in our children. I mean, part of that is probably societal, but part of it's what we're doing in schools and have been for a long time. And of course, uh, because of the way schools are are built, there's a lot of uh, peer bullying where and, and teacher to student bullying at times, but mostly peer to peer. And, and it's, my son went to a school just a little while ago, and he came back after the first day and said, I forgot how mean kids were at school. And I said, what, well, what did they do? And he said, I was just standing there looking at something at the wall and they were making fun of how I was standing. I said, was there any teacher around? He said, yeah, but I don't think they heard. So that that's happening all the time, and I know that there's lots of people out there whose kids have experienced that, and it, and that to him wasn't upsetting. He was just sh- shocked. <laughs> he was reminded of what it was like to be at school. I kind of like going to let that one sit for a little bit. I, all of those points, it's it's so true, right? And and it's hard to. I think that's the thing. It's hard to escape it because the structure of school has made it so. Like that box has um, just the way even the structure of um, authority um, and not questioning authority even for teachers to principals, administrators, how that is structured. That's just the way it is. So it's kind of like, um, you know, being excited about self-directed learning and hearing it and being, yes, let's do it. Let's offer it in our school and saying, well, we're going to give one class of self-directed learning, yet no one has ever experienced it before. And you don't work within a framework where even you as an adult can be a self-directed learner. So therefore, how can you offer that to the kids within your framework, within your box, 
there. I tried. You get, yeah, you tried exactly, and you get you get um, like I was like backlash, I guess, from even the kids in it because it's so you know it's so different. If after a while you become so accustomed to it that when you don't have it, it becomes very uncomfortable which is, I think, what we're also in this time period right now, many are experiencing. Yeah, that's true. I actually was thinking of this, uh, one of my last years teaching in a classroom, I, I was given a grade nine class where it was like an option class, so I could do whatever I wanted. And I decided to do a project-based learning class. And so, but the, the catch was the kids had to come up with their own projects. Like mm-hmm. I was not going to guide them at all. They were going to, they were going to learn what they wanted to learn. And it took them a long time to realize that they actually could come up with whatever they wanted. They had to pre- to present the idea. They had to come up with like a, a way to do it with my help. And then I would facilitate any resources that they needed. And some kids did really well with that. Those were the artists, actually. The artists in the class did very well with that. But some kids sat there for like a month, unable, frozen with what... And and here's the most harmful thing, I think, about the school system is that it's um, it like leeches out the idea that learning is valuable and that you can do it on your own yeah. without some kind of expert telling you what to do. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the most harmful parts of our school system is that for, somehow the way that it works means that kids say, you say to them, you can learn whatever you want. And they're like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. <laughs> Not even what, just I don't know what to do and really can't come up with an idea. And I think that's sad. Yeah. Yeah, they and it's like it's almost like it's disbelief because it's like, really, are you really going to let me do that? But if I do that, won't you say that these things we can't do, or you know, how is that going to work? Is you know, are you going to change your mind after? Or yeah, 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 it's difficult. Well, do you think that it's misunderstood? Unschooling or homeschooling then is misunderstood by educators? I mean, we're talking about all of this. We know many educators that agree with that, but they just say within our framework, we just can't do it. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's others who I don't, who, who disagree. Is it generally misunderstood? Lots of times I find that within my my work in position and I talk with many educators and in the end I find out they're like, oh, I just never knew it was like this. I only thought it was this way or I only thought it was for religious people or I only thought it was this and I didn't know that you actually could do this or that the government allows this. They just actually had no idea what really went on. Oh yes, I've I've had lots of conversations with parents about that because when they call me, I tell them about all their options and one is the parent directed option and the child directed option in Alberta and they're always surprised by not always, but mostly they're surprised by just how much uh freedom they can have as parents when it comes to their child's education. I definitely think that there's a misunderstanding in the school system uh, amongst educators and and schools and even upper administrators in a lot of areas, maybe not ours anymore, but in a lot of areas about what unschooling and homeschooling is and what happens. And And here's why I think that happens. It's because we don't talk about it. Um, I am very... I... I 
even at, if I am out at a grocery store in the middle of the week and I'm with, and my son is with me, we will always get stopped by somebody who will tell us that he should be in school. Right. And when, and, and so to those people, I would never say that I'm unschooling him. (laughs) (laughs) So when he turns out to be the excellent human being that he will be at the end, uh, will we even brag about the fact that he was unschooled? Like, because that might be something that gains disapproval and I can handle a certain amount of disapproval. I'm, I'm fairly outspoken about these things and I and I know that I know more than the person I'm talking to most of the time so that's easier for me but it's tiring after a while I get tired of explaining myself over and over again Um, because most people are considering success in a very rigid way uh, I don't know even if we were vocal about it if it would have an effect on our society when it comes to belief about what's important because they're measuring success in a different way than I am. Absolutely. And so the way that they're so a lot of I think a lot of parents who are very successful unschoolers are not going to be telling a lot of the school like people uh, that they're unschooling because they just they just know it's not going to be understood. Yeah. And so, and, and I, I'll say this too, that there's a lot of people that do bring their children back to school at certain points in time. I usually around grade seven and eight. So sometimes when their child becomes a little older and they're having trouble, um, educating them now because there's some, there's some pushback because of their age, but there's also some, uh, there, there's some lack of confidence in the part of the parents. Sometimes that happens. Uh, so the kids that go back to school um, are coming from homes sometimes that uh, have parents that lack confidence in their homeschooling mm-hmm. abilities. And so any lack of confidence on the part of a parent or a teacher will will change the education of that child, right? So I think sometimes the opinion that they have in schools is because of what they see and they don't see anything else. Right. And there's also a confirmation bias in there where they, you know, you look for what you believe <laughs> so that you can confirm that your belief is true. <laughs> so I think there's part, there's a whole bunch of factors go into the, um, that it's misunderstood. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember that at the old school that I worked at as well, <clears throat> when we would have any homeschoolers that would register, and as much as it was a very project-based, child-driven program, because it was an independent school, uh, you would still, the teachers would still sometimes say, well, make sure the parent understands that they're not going to be at this math level because they've been homeschooling, and, you know, like, make sure that they know that, because I also think they felt um, if pressure for themselves. If they didn't succeed by this time in the year, it would show on the teacher and they wanted to defer the blame, I guess, in some ways and, um, and feel like they weren't failing, I think, by their own personal standards too. Most homeschooling parents I found didn't care was the irony of it. The teachers are so concerned and the homeschooling parents were like, well, they run their own business every summer. So I'm not too concerned about their math, you know, like they didn't really honestly care about the textbook because they knew they already saw their child demonstrating so many capabilities in real life and they were confident about that. And it was interesting exactly what you said, the dichotomy of um, what you actually see and how the useful skills and then sometimes that textbook pages that sure you can regurgitate them and do well on a test, but then if you had to put them into practical application, could you really do it? 
and so many homeschooling parents, they knew their kids could do it or figure it out. So even if they didn't do well on that test because they hadn't been used to that style, it wasn't a big deal. They knew it wasn't the end of the world, and they knew their child was going to be just fine. <laughs> but it was trying to convince the teacher that the parents were actually okay with it because they were also used to parents that would really get down on them and say it was all the teacher's fault, all the teacher's responsibility, and they need to be doing a better job of it too. Yeah. I don't know if you had anything else to add. I, I didn't actually. I just – I. I yeah, I that I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, that happens at schools. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to ask you if we could tackle a few beliefs around and ideas around learning in school. And I'm also after going to tack on a few questions that I've been sent in by listeners who are dying to know a few things, especially with your experience and background. So number one, one of the big thing that, things that comes up for homeschooling families, whether they're unschooling, homeschooling, whatever you want to label or call it, is testing, in particular standardized testing. So I found something from our government website that I'd sent you, and this was what I had taken from there. These standardized tests reflect the essentials that all students are expected to achieve, regardless of school choice or location. They determine if students are learning, what they are expected to learn, report how well students have achieved standards at given points in their schooling, and assist schools, authorities, and the province in monitoring and improving student learning. And that is the reason why we have standardized tests and why they are so important to all students and families and the government. So... What is your take on standardized testing, and do we need it to prove that our children are learning? So standardized testing, that's the official belief, right, that they're, they're trying to figure out if students are learning what the approved curriculum, what teachers are supposed to be teaching. So really what standardized tests are about, in my opinion, is about accountability of teachers and uh, uh, transparency by governments. So this is what they're supposed to learn, and this is what they learned. Um, I could talk for hours about standardized <laughs> testing. I actually wrote lots of papers about this. I was re really interested right from the beginning of my career because I started in Ontario, and Ontario doesn't have a lot of standardized tests. They, yeah. they only have the EQAO testing, and the EQAO testing is just a literacy and numeracy test in grade 9, and you have to pass it if you want to graduate, so you have four years. And, and so when I went to university for uh, teacher's education in my bachelor degree, there was a lot of talk about standardized testing because, and the professors were very much against it. So I actually got exposed to those ideas quite early on. So when I did my master's degree, um, when I realized that schools needed to be reformed, I realized that standardized testing was actually one of the, one of the key things that were, was going to stop that from happening. So I have some research here that I wrote down because I, I, I did a lot of research and I wrote some papers and some of them are on that website that I put up. Uh, Alfie Cohn, for example, researched standardized testing and stated that writing and interpreting standard tests is more difficult than people think. Uh, so he, he, his books talk a lot about that, how you think that it's easy, you ask this question from the outcomes and then the student answers it and either they're right or wrong, but that's not really true. What ha that's not really what happens. A lot of the tests are flawed in the questions and how they're phrased. 
So I'm going to give you an example from about three years ago. The student learning achievement test for grade two, uh, for grade three, so the grade two learning uh, in math, had a question on it that was worth 50% of the grade for that test. And the question said, you can uh, ask the question and then had an and or option at the end. And most kids picked and, but the test scoring was actually based on the word or. I know, I mean, or, I, they did the or, and it was, they were supposed to do both things. So it was like, oh. do this or that, or is do this and or that. Right. And most kids went, I'll do this or that. And, and the test scores were saying this and that. So when we went to score it at the end, I realized right away that it was wrong, the way that it was phrased, and that it was unfair. And of course, a lot of kids failed that test because of that. And so I don't think the data was very good at the end. I, I think that the data I got as a teacher, which is the purpose of the SLA tests here in Alberta, um, was deeply flawed because the question was wrong um, and badly written, very badly written test. And so that's the problem with standard, one of the problems with standardized testing. Uh, Alfie Cohn also said in an interview that teachers could do far better assessments of student learning and better teaching when they didn't have a provincial or standardized test at the end. And I agree with that based on my experience in Ontario versus here versus BC, because I've lived in a lot of provinces, Nunavut, yeah. Quebec. I've lived in all of those provinces. And I agree that um, when you're in Ontario and you're not teaching to a test, you're doing better teaching because you're teaching kids instead. Um, he ta he called the test, Alfie Cohn called those tests corporate driven, heavy handed, and that it dumbed down the learning into something that could be quantified. And that's true about standardized tests. You cannot tell what a student learned from a standardized test because a certain percentage of them will suffer from test anxiety mm -hmm. and they won't do well just because of that. So can you assess their learning on a standardized test? I, I, I think that you cannot. <laughs> Popham was another writer whose paper I read and he agreed that the way that tests are designed, written, and marked are, he said that they were unfair, unclear, unreliable, and both creating and marking are often arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly been my experience as a teacher. Um, they, he also wrote that when some states introduced standardized tests as a way to ensure that students were meeting certain minimum requirements in the 60s, it actually quickly morphed into some kind of scoreboard mm -hmm. and in, induced motivation where people were actually comparing schools based on their standardized tests. And it actually took away learn, uh, the attention from the actual learning that might be happening in the classrooms. And people were av avidly waiting for these scores to be posted in order to decide what they were going to do next. And they put the focus on the kids and the teachers that were good at teaching to the test are learning are taking tests instead of actually who was learning. And so that's, uh, he's also said that teachers in his study, teachers would start eliminating things that they didn't think was going to be on the test. Right. Of course. Yeah. Of course, because all that really matters in the end isn't learning. It's how well that test goes. So, uh, he thought that that, uh, that the learning was affected greatly by uh, standardized tests in classrooms. 
think how many times a, a student will say, is this going to be on the test? Do we have to know this? Because is this going to be on the test? I, you know, that's a common, oh, if your parent says, but it's not even going to be on the test. So there's no point in me doing it. <laughs> Oh, that's true. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Or is this going to be marked? That was another yeah. one. <laughs> because assessments, another thing, or they they don't like to do formative assessments because it's not going to be counted for anything, and that right. that's that's totally against what what is that's not learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's uh, just assessment. I think the education uh, system shouldn't be merely developing kids' abilities to take tests because that's not real life. Like. We take tests on some things. We take a driver's test. A lot of people have to take testing for their for their, um, whatever job that they're doing. But aside from that, I don't know about you, but I haven't taken a lot of tests as an adult. And in fact, when you have when you take a master's degree, there are no tests at the end. Right. So it's all assessments, all based on or PhD well. or a PhD. Yeah. yeah. So it's there's no tests after your bachelor degree. It's all just based on what you can prove in other ways. Um, Todd Farley wrote a book, his, his, Todd Farley wrote a book called Making the Grades, My v- Misadventures in the Standardized Testing Industry. And you can actually, there's a free PDF online of that book. And he actually was one of the test scorers for a standardized test down in the United States. And he kind of takes, and this, it's a story and he takes readers through this journey, uh, through the test scorers world where basically... Uh, un- unqualified, not not teachers, but unqualified people uh, are given a rubric and asked to make decisions about students that they've never met mm-hmm. on uh, based on one test that they've taken. And his takeaway through all of his journey was that teachers in te- teachers who were teaching in classrooms would have a far better idea and better information to help them determine what the children actually learned. Right. And that the tests and the tests are often designed with certain kids in mind. Um, he, Mark Garrison wrote about that too. That uh, that in his book, A Measure of Failure: The Political Origins of Standardized Testing, he argues that the real reason behind standardized testing is to maintain the status quo, um, because certain children, like uh, English as a second language learners or ELL learners, immigrant children, Aboriginal peoples, and a whole bunch of other uh, are left behind in standardized testings because of the questions that are asked and the things that they're, they're testing for. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I remember even uh, I used to have to do IQ tests sometimes. And I remember at one point, because we had a lot of international kids or kids that whose families were immigrant families to Canada, and thinking, you know, this test is, <laughs> it's not very um, diverse. It's very much uh, geared towards a very centric way of knowing you know, certain data, certain ways of learning that doesn't take into account, you know, generally someone who's coming from another country, it wasn't that they weren't intelligent. It was just the questions weren't designed for, you know, what they had experienced and learned. And so it's funny that you base how, like, and that was their intelligence rating, but yet at the same time, it wasn't really accurate. And sometimes kids would score really, really well. And I think, Hmm. <laughs> you know, but this other student did not. I don't, you know, it doesn't, it, it was strange. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's an IQ test that one's supposedly you're not supposed to study for, but I found 
the similar, you know, disparities in that one as well. Yeah. 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 Did you want to add anything else? Yeah, I just... I wanted to give some examples of how some students are, are so ESL students, English as a second language, who come to our country and even have been here for only uh, for, for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes five years for a student to develop the kind of academic language that would allow them to take a test and do well on it. And so they are not being judged fairly by these standardized tests. Um, far northern towns, not necessarily Inuit, but anywhere like us, <laughs> like us <laughs> we are at a disadvantage. If you're a child who's grown up here and has never been anywhere else, would you know what a city bus looks like unless you saw And e- even if you knew what it was because you saw it on TV, you don't have any firsthand knowledge about the word bus, <laughs> except right. for possibly a school bus. So it's very centralist. It's very Eurocentric because some of the concepts in there, um, are about and another thing that Marie Batiste's books was talking about was that uh, you know some people have privilege and others don't and that's kind of an assumption in standardized tests who those people are and so a lot of the testing and a lot of the curriculums that are out there are very Eurocentric yeah. and uh, tests because they're required and you're being judged on them. Uh, they reinforce those ideas in, in a way that's um, unfair and not conducive to changing those things. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine taking that test and failing or not doing well. And usually that is the label that you receive. And you take that with you as you carry forward as a student. I'm thinking as a child. And you can't really understand, discern that, you know, this test is written with a certain viewpoint or my, you know, just my language skills are not here yet because I just need more exposure to it. And therefore, that's why I couldn't um, do as well. Or I mean, there's so many other factors that for kids, they just don't think about. They just assume that they're not good enough because they didn't do well on a test that's measuring everybody and their worth in so many ways. I think of an example, too. There was this teacher up in um, the Arctic when I lived in Nunavut, who was teaching a lower lower grade than me, and she was really frustrated because she had been reading this book, and the kids were supposed to write a report on it, and their their reports were really odd, and they didn't really understand. And so I'm reading this little book that she had given them, and I said, do they know what a garden is? Because the whole idea of the book is written about a garden, mm-hmm. and they don't have gardens up there. And they, they, it, gardening isn't really a thing that you see on TV a lot, even like the, so their exposure to the idea of garden is very, very limited, if nothing at all. And she looked at it, she was shocked, actually. She was like... I had not even thought of that. <laughs> and I think, what if a standardized test had the word garden in it? <laughs> yeah. And so a whole bunch of kids up north are not um, are not par- are not able to really participate. And one of the problems with standardized testing is what you said just now uh, was that students carry an idea of themselves away with that. So I get asked a lot because we have our provincial achievement tests and they are optional in Alberta. For So if a parent decides to opt their child out of a standardized test in Alberta, um, they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of parents don't know that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I talk to them about whether or not they want to take the paths. And I tell them the reason that schools want you to take the paths is because they receive a, a score of zero if you don't. Um, but you have to decide based on what you think is the best thing for your child. Yeah. 
and you have to weigh um, the information that you get from it with uh, because pets in Alberta are actually quite fairly written. <laughs> they're they're very carefully written. I I went through it looking for flaws and couldn't find any in one year uh, in social studies, the grade six social studies provincial achievement test. And so I uh, I t- I talked to them about that and I I asked them. They have to weigh the possible emotional impact of failing that test with the data that they might receive from the test itself. And so some parents opt in and some parents opt out based on that, I I hope, which is unbiased information. Even though I clearly have a bias against standardized (laughs) tests, I try to give unbiased information to parents when I talk to them. Um, the thing is, a stand, standardized test is probably not going to go away. Yeah. And I think in the school system, we have to work at minimizing the damage of it and not teaching to the test. And just, I, I had a principal once that said, you, if you teach to a test, you're not really, they're not really learning. So you, you, you teach them the information that they're going to need to pass it, you know, that you're supposed to teach them. And if you teach it well, then they'll pass the test because they just, that's just the way it works. It's not always true, but (laughs) that is an idealistic way of looking at it. I think that we have to learn, learn to lessen the impact of standardized tests because governments don't like taking them away. They like adding them. Yeah. 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 Well, I I think as well for a government, what happens is um, they want to show to their voters, it's a measurement to show to their voters as well or to the public that they are doing what they said they were doing or saying, here you go, here's some proof that what we did worked, essentially. So they, they need that um, physical or actual, that visible proof, I guess, in so many ways. Um, whether it's totally valid or not, well, <laughs> but yeah, that's what they use. I mean, we even have the world test as well, right, with the um, the PISA oh. test as well, oh, yeah. you know, and internationally and how well Canada does or Alberta does and how all of that is measured as well, especially against like Korea and, well, not even China. I have to point out that it's Shanghai, which is not the entire country of China, <laughs> and it's Hong Kong, and um, you know none of the other numerous students are included in that scoring for China and all of the other provinces that exist within China. <laughs> they just take Hong Kong. I have yet to see a full China, the country of China, but that's just my my addition into there. But um, anyways, we just have to be conscious of that. So I also remember when I lived in the city that where you do have more choice in schools, that they used to print in the newspaper the annual results for each school on their testing. And I remember parents would bring that report in because that's what they would use for their school choice and or ask questions of, well, what, is you do- what are you doing compared to this school that scored the highest or that did this or, you know, did really well? And um, unfortunately, I remember I, I knew a teacher who worked in an inner city school. The majority of her class were refugee students who were ELL students. And always, every year, her school would do poorly on those tests. But she also had received many awards as a teacher. She was a grade six teacher. And I know she had spoken to me about the difficulty of, I mean, just supporting her kids emotionally, but then having to be a sixth grade teacher and be measured on those exams when her kids were like, she was happy that they were able to make it to school that day. And that was a win, 
you know, and, and then here her school was continuously at the bottom, but yet they were doing so many, like I know personally from her, the amazing work that she was doing with supporting her students. So yeah, we have to look at it um, in many different lenses as well. Yeah, we talked about, you know, they're just not, our te- I, you know, our test is an accurate measure of a child's learning and understanding. And I think we talked about so many ways that it, it doesn't necessarily reflect it. So this is a big question that comes up a lot. I know after I'm going to ask some questions that listeners had sent in, um, and this one comes up many times, reading, especially for homeschoolers and unschoolers. You'll hear both. Sometimes many homeschoolers that are early readers and that are avid readers because they have a lot of time to read, and so they do quite well with reading. You also hear of many late readers in homeschooling and unschooling. So, But when you're in school, the standard is you should be reading at a certain level by a certain age. And if you're not reading at a certain level by a certain age, there's something wrong, essentially. So late readers versus struggling readers. Um, schools insist that this is a big part of a child's achievement and success is, you know, generally I think it's they should be reading by seven or six or seven now. It keeps getting lower and lower every year, I find. Um, and that if they're not reading early, reports say that their chance of success as an adult are dwindling every year. And, you know, basically I think what happens is you just feel like you're failing as a parent. You're not a good parent if your child isn't measuring up to those standards, right? You want them to be successful and to have all the opportunities. So, but then there are more reports happening now and more studies that are contradicting that data and information. And I, you know, I'd referred to Finland because so many, it's not as based on kids enter school later. They for the most part, don't enter school reading, and they don't read right away. But yet, if you're going to look at those uh, quote-unquote you know, international standards, they do very, very well. So if a child doesn't read by the age of seven, is it the end of the world for them? Are their chances of success diminished? Are they never going to read? What's, what's going to happen here? Well, I'm, I'm going to say first, absolutely not. And I'm going to speak to my own experience because I've read... Uh, I've read things on both sides of the fence on this one. Uh, And I find actually the different research kind of confounding sometimes because they say such opposite things. So I'll tell you about each of them. Uh, Some of those reports, research-based reports, say that only a certain percentage of students can learn to read themselves. And they can only learn in English by developing something called phonemic awareness and other skills that reading experts have broken down into exhaustingly minute detail. (laughs) Other people say that the first group of people are biased towards the programs that they themselves have written and they want to sell them. And of course, they've done the, and and the kids can often learn to read by, by themselves when they're ready. Uh, without any help, any formal teaching, or any knowledge of phonemic awareness, <laughs> so those are the two sides of the fence. And it's really hard to under. It's really hard, even for me, who was really interested in learning the answer to this question, to know what the answer was. So I, I, I have. I say I'm going to speak from my own experience because that's the only like evidence I have that's not contradicted by somebody else's evidence mm-hmm. somewhere else. Um, so when we started homeschooling, my son was in the middle of grade three and his reading level was at a low grade one level. 
He wasn't able to read very well, and he hated reading. He was also in one of those classes where they got withdrawn, mm-hmm. and and he considered himself quite dumb because of that. Uh, uh, and so in 3.5 years in school, he had not developed any reading uh, skills almost at all. He ha- he knew how to sound out some letters. He often got it wrong. He was, and I was worried about him. I really was. He was he was so low. And I had read these books about how kids would just learn to read when they were ready. And I didn't really believe it. <laughs> but I knew for sure that forcing him to do it would probably lead to him not wanting to. And because that's the kind of child he is. <laughs> so about six months later, I'll fast forward six months later, um, he was reading at grade level. And I know this because I took him in to get tested by the Fontas and Pinnell test that they had used at the beginning of the year. And the teacher was shocked that he had progressed so much. And he asked me what I did. And I said, nothing. He just decided he wanted to learn to read. And so he learned to read. Well, somebody must have taught him. I said, no, he didn't really taught him anything. <laughs> I'm a principal for me. So you think I have time for that? <laughs> I definitely do not. <laughs> uh, and, and so I'm a believer now that kids can teach themselves how to read when they've decided that they want to. Um, I didn't push him. I didn't try to make him read. I didn't talk about reading. I decided I was just going to leave books around that he might be interested in. And I was going to read myself. And I think one day he just decided he wanted to be able to read and started to try to decode the signs that he saw in the community on the signs. Right. And I actually, that's when I realized that he was ready um, and, and he, so in the grocery store, he was trying to read cereal boxes and stuff, and he was really interested all of a sudden. And that's when, uh, I decided to try and read to him and get him interested in reading. We, we st- also used audiobooks because he hated stories. He only liked reading things that were practical things like right. how to, how to things. Right. And, and so his appreciation of literature was never going to be there. And, but we actually started with the Harry Potter, Potter books and did an audio book in the car because we're in the car so much. And he started to understand that stories might actually be not something boring, like for, for little kids, but actually very complex and interesting. So he, he got interested in reading storybooks because of that. And I, th- I, I believe now that if he had continued in school, he probably would still be at a very low level of reading because I think trying to force him through would have created an inner resistance that would have been very difficult to overcome later on. Mm. Um, he needed, he particularly needed autonomy and he needed space to be able to decide that he wanted to learn to read, not being forced to read. And he also needed to develop confidence that he could do it because he was comparing himself to the other kids and he was behind. And being in that class that he called the dumb class was not inspiring a sense of confidence. So I think if I had just let him left him to learn to read, he would have been able to do it eventually anyway, without any guidance, even from the school. Now, some people will probably say, well, he had three and a half years of reading instruction before that. So you're wrong. He did learn a sense of phonemic awareness before that. So of course that kicked in later. <laughs> I, I don't think that's true though. I think one of the reasons he was a late reader is because we lived in China when he was young and his knowledge of English was actually quite low when we moved back when he was in kindergarten. So his language skills were a little different to begin with. And I think that that was probably the reason for his low reading at, at to begin with. But that was not... 
that wasn't acknowledged by the by the schools uh, any of his teachers really i agree with finland that kids who are who achieve good results later uh have been exposed to a rich variety of language opportunities because i think that uh, will will eventually lead to better learning or better reading for him later on because he knows two languages. Right. So I, I agree with them on that one. So I'd like to say to the parents whose kids can't read yet um, that you, there's hope. And there's a lot of families who've been through that too, and their child doesn't learn to read until they're 10, even as late as 12. Yeah. And sometimes it's a developmental stage thing. I think some kids are not developmentally ready to read at age seven, and they could not do it even if they had the best instruction in the world, which they do often have the best instruction from the best researched papers from the best (laughs) experts in the field, and they still can't read. And that's not a personal failure of theirs. That's because they're not ready, just like babies are sometimes not ready to walk until they're much older than other kids can learn to walk. So I think uh, people need to realize, I, I would like to say that you can you can relax and, and, let, and let it happen and don't push too hard because some kids really react emotionally to that. Some kids don't, but mine did. Yeah. It's also interesting that I don't know if it's uh, a cultural language thing for us as well, especially in North America, uh, maybe in other places too. But for English, and because we also support phonics so much um, that, you know, it doesn't apply, phonemic awareness doesn't apply to all languages. There are some languages like Chinese, like Mandarin, Cantonese, that are not phonemic. They are actually symbols, symbols you have to put together. So it's not a matter of sounding things out and learning the phonemic awareness of them. It's a completely different structure in the language. And there are other languages like that, that learning them, it's not English. So it's interesting that we put so much importance on that time period for English, but I don't know what all the nuances are for every other language in the world. It'd be interesting to find a study on that. Maybe someone will, maybe someone will write me and say, you have it all wrong, here is, and please send it to me. I will, I will read it. I will read it. So, um, but we, for some reason, we don't, um, we don't look at things. It's, it's different in different countries, just like math how in China, math is viewed very differently than the way we view it here in Canada and in the United States and, and other English-speaking countries. So um, I, that's another thing to keep and take into consideration as well. Okay, so the next question is um, on learning. Learning has to be, must be academically rigorous. It has to be really hard for it to be good learning. And that play is not good learning. Play is just play, and it's something that little kids do. And it should be reserved for preschool, kindergarten. But you know what? They're also taking a lot of play out of kindergarten. Depending where you are, they're trying to put play back into kindergarten in a lot of places. Some schools as well are trying to incorporate more play-based learning, which is fantastic. Um, But I still hear, well, what about the rigor, especially when you're when it's unschooling, you know, what about learning should be hard? What about that hard work and effort that they should be putting in every day? If they're not doing that, are they really learning anything? So I think rigor is overrated. I think rigor comes from the idea that um, you want to see teachers not just handing out worksheets that's easy to do because kids get disengaged. So I guess engagement is the real focus for me. 
because a good rigorous program is where a student learns in depth and one and is one that they're engaged in and i and i think that's when deep learning can really happen they should be excited about it maybe even have chosen to do it and deep down inside uh when when someone has found something that they're interested in that they love that they're passionate about you don't need the carrot and stick that you have in schools um so i find that a child or an adult who's really interested in learning something um they can really get into the zone or get into the flow mm-hmm. of learning quite deeply. I do that myself. In fact, when I, I constantly procrastinated when I was doing my master's degree by <laughs> learning something new, like how to look after chickens, so I decided I was really interested in that. I could not stop <laughs> learning about chickens, even though I was supposed to be writing a paper about standardized testing. <laughs> I don't agree that play is only for pre-K and K students. Kindergarten students only learn by play almost exclusively. And if I, as a principal, walked into a classroom in a kindergarten room and saw most of the time being spent at a desk writing, I would probably pull the teacher aside and have a conversation about how kids that age learn because that's not how they learn. Mm. They And what are they learning? So if they're tracing letters, are they actually learning about that letter or are they learning how to trace, for example? So what's being taught and what's actually being learned is often two different things because little kids learn by playing. Right. And so they, and you can see them mimicking other adults, especially adults. They mimic adults in their play and they're learning so much. I think Peter Gray talked about this a lot. And, and the way, and the things that they do in social interactions are so complex. Um, that's what they're learning. They're learning about how to be a person in society. And this, that's what education is all about. Yeah. When they get older, um, I think uh, uh, the best thing would be to focus on the flow or that that getting in the zone thing that people can do, any people, adults or, or kids can do. And I think part of the reason we don't like that is because it feels like play. Right. <laughs> when we are learning something and we're in the zone and we're learning just at the level that we are interested in and it's, and it, and you, and you like ser- searching out knowledge, it feels like fun. And they're like, Oh, this can't be yeah. rigorous at all. <laughs> and that's not true. <laughs> that's actually the opposite. That's probably when we're learning the most and it's probably what we're going to remember later too. Yeah. It's, that's such a good point that I think we discounted. It's like, we're having too much fun, so it must be wrong. That kind of thing, right? <laughs> I just reminded me of a story when I was doing my project-based learning in uh, China. I, I, The kids were resistant at first because they they really thought that that was not real learning. Like they're not sitting at a desk doing worksheets. They're like recreating a battle or something with like fake swords that we found outside. And And I had a kid walk in. We had we had recreated the the 1929 uh, crash of the stock market, and the kids were all upset and they're yelling and they're <laughs> shredding up their fake money and <laughs> stomping around. And a kid from another social studies class next door walks in and says, "Oh, I thought this was a social studies class." And I said, "It is." And he said, "Why does everybody look so happy in here?" <laughs> Because they're learning. (laughs) That's what it's all about. It's actually interesting that sometimes the biggest pushback is from students themselves. 
from kids themselves who have gotten used to feeling that for them to be doing something or accomplishing something, they're doing something hard and unjoyful and rigorous. It's funny because the name, the word rigor, not that, I mean, sometimes, yeah, there's some rigorous, yeah, play and things can be rigorous. They can be, but usually the word rigor, like from the Latin word, I think of rigor mortis, like death, like <laughs> such stiffness that you're dead, you're unmovable, you're not flexible, you're just like inert, essentially, right? Yeah. So it's an interesting word that we've taken and put into the whole concept of learning. <laughs> I had never thought of that before. That is a good point. I, I hadn't thought of the Latin roots of the word rigor. <laughs> That is true. I liked I, I liked the kids in China that uh, first said, "I don't I don't want to do this project based learning. I want to actually learn because my mother is very upset if I don't pass the yeah. test." And then they got to the end of the semester and did better on the test than anybody else. And suddenly, I had an influx of people going to uh, the career center saying, "I want that teacher <laughs> because she's really teaching." And I they so suddenly they realized that that was actually a valuable way to learn, and they learned more from my projects than they learned from doing worksheets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what sticks for sure. Okay, so I thought now would be a good time. I'm going to go to some of the questions, uh, listener questions. Let me see here. Okay, so what unschooling principles would you most like to see in our... uh, This is actually two questions, so I'll break it up. So what unschooling principles would you most like to see in our schools? I think um, the idea of self-directed learning would be really useful. I, I know we we talked before, you and I, about how uh, school and the rigidity of school does not lead to things like entrepreneurship, yeah. and that it's very, very difficult to teach entrepreneurship in school because of the way school is structured. But since entrepreneurship is probably the way of the future, and that's the, probably the way that things are going to change because people coming up with new ideas are the ones that are going to change things in our society and and address some of those big things that need to be changed, like our 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 environment and and things like that in our society and having having this. Uh, we, we're we're starting to see that right now, especially with the COVID nineteen virus going around and just how many things are being questioned in our society. Like, if you can suspend all of these things, why couldn't you do it before? If you can, if you can stop the pollution in China, then why was there pollution in China? I'm not trying to trying to criticize Chinese people because I know I lived there and I know that everybody's doing the best they can. But and and that's just the way that it's structured. But it's the same with our society. If you can, if you can suspend um, the interest on on student loans for people who are struggling, why couldn't you do it before? Things like that. I, I think those big questions about how our society is structured and everything is probably going to come from the create the the solutions are going to come from the creative thinkers and that's not what we're we're creating in schools and so how how do we do that i think self-directed learning is probably one of the answers i can't see it happening in alberta right now with the way that the laws are structured because they're requiring standardized testing and they're requiring um, Alberta curriculum to be taught in any school that's like a certified school, yeah. w- private or, or charter or, or public. 
And as long as you have that kind of rigid system, it is impossible to change. And standardized testing, it is impossible to change it to anything else. So those things would have to change first. Yeah, I agree. It goes back to that you want to create freedom within a system that offers no freedom, that is so structured that you can't really be free. So, okay. So the second part of the question as well, um, how could teachers and administrators work together to achieve uh, unschooling principles, for example, like self-directed learning for students in an environment so dictated by assessments? I think you really already answered that and that it is extremely difficult when it's an environment dictated by that. Yeah, I think one of the things that Alberta did that was really good was instituting the high school redesign. And high school redesign on their website, when I did research for this, explicitly said that it was created in order for people to question how school was done and what it was for. And so high school redesign, in, in, because high school is actually the most rigid system that there is, yeah. because they're subject specialists, and they have very rigid boundaries around their subjects. Yeah. And to the idea of melding science and social studies is unheard of. It's just that people just don't get that, how that could even happen. I was a physics and history major, so I do know how it could happen. <laughs> but uh, a lot of teachers and administrators can't imagine that. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, high school redesign was a great idea, but it's an add-on, not a change in society, a change in the system itself. High school redesign for people who don't live in Alberta or aren't administrators <laughs> are, is uh, where they had flex time. The kids had flex time, and they were able sometimes if they had all their work done, which is another <laughs> part of the piece that probably should have changed. Um, they could go and learn whatever they wanted from the teachers who were offering certain things. I think it could have gone a lot further and the kids could have come up with the ideas of what they wanted to learn and then had had teachers facilitate those things. But that's not how it worked in most places because uh, people were not comfortable with that. And so you had, so it, it was partially, I, I think, was sort of a failed experiment because kids were not engaged. Uh, I think they could have been. And I think a lot of the problems in schools, the bullying, the lack of engagement, the the, the push against authority could be changed by having child-directed education in schools. Um, because if you could envision a, a school with self-directed learning where kids actually believe that they can learn what they want and actually go and do it, um, the, the engagement problem would disappear. Yeah. And so would a lot of the behaviors that we see in schools that are difficult. And, and what the management side of, of uh, administrative work is often discipline, and so is for teachers too. And I think that that could be changed quite significantly if they were actually interested in what they were learning. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's funny because I, I listen, you know, we're, we're talking and I'm listening to what you're saying, and then I think of like for you and I, our, our background and work and think, well, this is way too far out for some people. <laughs> they're going to listen and be like, oh, Robin and Gold are at it again. This is just too much kind of. But then for others are, yes, I think majority get it. And yeah, they understand it. If not on like a deeper level, on a basic level. Absolutely. Okay. So let me go to the next question here. Sorry. So how did you how did she, how did you let go of your schoolish pedagogy and beliefs on how learning looks and truly embrace unschooling? So you have shared quite a bit on that already, but is there anything else you want to add to that? 
I think the more experience I gain with having my son engaged in his own learning, the more I am letting go of my schoolish beliefs because I didn't, I believed it on an intellectual level at first because I listened to your podcast. I listened to some very smart people who are experts um, talking about how it was working, but uh, I think a change really deep down had to happen. And I think that's going to be just experience because I, 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 not only do I have my own son where I see a change in his interest in learning now, because he used to say, when I took him out of school first, he said, learning is boring. I hate, I hate learning. It's so I had that we took quite a while for that to go away actually. Um, But when I, when I go to other homes too and see how it's working, I little every time I see it working, I let go a little bit more of my previous opinions about how things should be, um, and 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 like I said, there's been challenges with that because every once in a while I'll get brainwashed again by some admin meeting or something, <laughs> or I'll go to a house actually that has very rigid beliefs and about what schooling should look like, and then I'll come out of there and, and go, no, no, not for you though. I mean, for those families, yes, that's fine, but not for you. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Struggle. Struggle's real always. Yep. <laughs> So, you know, and yeah, and again, a lot of the other questions as well are reading, you know, the reading expectations, reading, play, um, you know, your insights on kids not reading by the expected time and only playing all day long, the, if there's a big problem with that. Um, there was more than one question about reading and play. So I I guess I, I did kind of cover that already. I'd like to say one more thing about reading is when uh, I have a parent that is asking me that question and I'm talking about one specific child, I often ask them what that child is interested in. And when we find an interest, often animals for the kids of, from about grades, I mean, age six to about age 10, I find that animals are a big draw for a lot of kids that don't like reading because they like that science part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're very like left brain. I know that's not really a thing, but <laughs> it's how I explain people who like science and math instead of language. Um, I think uh, what I suggest to them is to let them read what they're interested in. Uh, let them let them do read aloud books on Epic. Don't or Epic is an app where uh, they have lots of different choices: watching videos, reading, and, and reading aloud books where the book reads to you. Right. Uh, let them do that. Let them listen to audiobooks. Don't just have a rigid idea of li- what literacy is and what reading should look like, because there's lots of different ways to learn how stories work and how literacy works, and one and, and those are all valid. So if they like Archie comics or what is it now? Uh, what's that? The the guy with the underwear? Oh, uh, not Captain Underpants. Captain Underpants. Captain yeah. So that's a let them read those things. Yeah. That's fine. That's that's. So there's another. There's another one that's all, but I can't remember the name. Of it. My kids read those as well. Yeah. If they're interested in graphic novels instead of of a book that you think is real reading, just let them do that first. Mm. Don't don't push it. Beca- don't push it too hard because you'll you don't want to create that resistance, and you don't want to create a situation where they hate it. And I think uh, the love of reading is way more important than reading by a certain age. Mm-hmm. As for the play question, uh, I guess it depends on the age of the child, <laughs> partially. 
And like I said before, uh, when kids are older, often what looks like play is actually quite deep learning. Yeah. Um, my son, for example, loves video games very, very much. He loves them. <laughs> and he's recently decided to try and create one, which is actually very difficult. Yeah. Um, so it looks from the outside like he's playing, but the difficulty of that task is actually quite significant and he's dedicated to it. So I see... I see a different love of learning that he didn't even know he possessed before that. So right. I'd say uh, don't devalue what they're doing. Try to find the learning in what they're doing, not not uh, label it as play when maybe it's learning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can share an example of my son as well. <clears throat> For a while, he um, he watched these survival videos like so much <laughs> nonstop it seemed like and I was you know for a while I began to like are you sure you want to watch it and there was a series he had found online about survival where people were chosen to go it was like a reality like a survivor but they were survivalists in and they were I think they did one episode a bunch of episodes in, on Vancouver Island um Chile, Patagonia and I think Mongolia was another one and, um, like he loved these and he'd talk about them all the time. And he was always like, couldn't wait for the next one. He'd watch them all and couldn't wait for the next one to come out and he'd watch them again. And, um, he actually hasn't watched them for a bit, but what happened was, is that he, you know, it just folded into everything else that he loves. You know, he would go out and he would build shelters like he would see and try and build his own shelter or, you know, what his, you know, Christmas list requests were all things that like, you know, a shovel <laughs> and, you know, a knife and things like that, that were all survival. You know, he got a survival book and, you know, plants and all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, he's really into guiding and fishing and hunting and outdoors and skiing. Like he's a very active kid in that way. And he, you know, is really into biology and, you know, animal science is his big thing. And so really in the end, I realized it all just folded. It all was just an extension of his focused interest. And um, as much as at one point I get worried and think, how much survival shows can you actually consume? <laughs> are you still learning? Yeah, are you, you still learning? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's a lot he knows and a lot I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot I just don't know. <laughs> and a lot that he, he tells me about, you know, and a lot that I've learned as well and I think, you know, he's going to be okay. And he actually has a chance. Someone we know who has a guiding camp offered said and knows he's a homeschooler and has the time. He said when he's ready, you know, he's welcome to apprentice there, to, to go there. And it's a great experience. And, you know, in the end, all those things that you might worry and think, you know, is this really important? Like, you've seen this five times, is it? You know, but then you see them do it or practice it or it's, it's, it's been valuable. And something that they carry forward. It's like that web that they're adding to and creating and strengthening and, and growing. So anyways, that was just my own personal example to, to throw in there as well. So Okay, so what advice would you leave with parents that are starting to look into homeschooling or that are interested in homeschooling? Right now is interesting because everybody at this current moment in time is homeschooling because of COVID, but um, what advice would you give to parents? So for parents who want to uh, homeschool, not the ones that are 
being compelled to do it right now because <laughs> I know that's not the same thing at all. Um, if you're being compelled to do it, you're just kind of scrambling and it's not your decision and it's a really stressful time to begin with and you got stressed out kids and it's really hard. Uh, for those people, it's hopefully over by the time you hear this, but... <laughs> uh, <laughs> But don't, I would say just to relax your expectations for a little while and let the teachers uh, help you uh, figure out what to do. But if, you, but if you're choosing to homeschool in Alberta, call me because I'm a facilitator. And the more people I have, the better I help people all over the province, not just in our area. And, I, and, I, and I'm willing to take phone calls and help people that aren't registered with us too. Um, I support traditional schooling and unschooling and religious programming. And I believe that the parents, that this is actually key. I think that parents are the best people to decide things for their own children. I know that the school system can be very arrogant sometimes, uh, thinking that they know best, but they don't. And I think that you have to have trust and confidence in your own ability um, when you're homeschooling. I think that's actually a key to success in homeschooling. And by success, I mean raising well-adjusted children, <laughs> um, that when they get to be adults, they can do what they want to do and not have a lot of obstacles in the way because they they have a lack of confidence or they have a lack of ability or skill. That aside, if you, you, you can always contact me and I can talk to you about what all your options are, even if you're not here. Uh, one of the things that makes me different, I think, from other people who are offering homeschooling in our province is that I'm maybe a little bit more realistic <laughs> because I know both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if your child, for example, says that they want to be a mechanic, that is a very different conversation than if they say they want to be a veterinarian because veterinarian school is very difficult to get into and you need a high academic score, I think 95% and, and yeah. dash one classes in Alberta. So that means the highest level of, of schooling. And so it's not reasonable to say you can just take, I, I don't want to criticize anybody else's advice, but I don't, you can't, it's not probably reasonable to say you can get a 95% on the diploma exams if you challenge it. It would be very difficult. So I think it's just a, a realistic version of, of uh, schooling. But then I do know ways around those things too. Like you can get into university you can get into university by with unschooling and not getting a high school diploma for certain programs. And I know what those are. So I, there's that realistic part. That's what makes me a bit different than some of the other uh, homeschooling facilities that offer that in the province. Again, I'm not criticizing any specific people because they're all doing the best they can. They just most haven't, mostly of them haven't been principals, I don't think. <laughs> I also have struggled and had fears of my own. So I understand those inner struggles and I understand how people can doubt themselves throughout the year. And I'm there to offer support. And uh, I've seen firsthand growth and emotional health that comes from taking children out of school. I hear horror stories every single day. Um, with my job because parents call me when they're desperate. They call me when they don't know what else to do. Uh, their child's being bullied or has severe anxiety or they're, they're not learning or they're, they're sitting outside because their behavior is so bad that the teacher won't have them in the classroom and so they feel like they're wasting their time and they are, they've been struggling with for weeks, months or years with that. And they call me because they're, they don't know what to do and I have 
this homeschooling background and also was a principal and a teacher, so I can help with that. And I've seen those kids go from, uh, some examples are sitting across the table from me at my first visit, glaring at me with their arms folded (laughs) because I'm a school person (laughs) and they don't trust us anymore. To a month later, uh, sharing their their projects with me. A month later, I come back and they'll they'll be wide eyed, looking, smiling, happier, more well adjusted. Their parents will say that their anxiety is gone, that they're not they're not they're sleeping through the night now, that they're not uh, experiencing social anxiety when they go out anymore because they are calmer. So I've seen a- incredible differences in children that have been taken out of school when there's a problem. Um, And one of the main things that parents are worried about, so this is my last piece of advice, is that your child will not go unsocialized. That is not a thing. Um, I mean, if you keep them at home all the time, or right now you have to, but (laughs) but if you keep them home all the time and don't let them go out anywhere, then yes, they'll be unsocialized. But most of you are not going to do that. Most of you are going to be part of a church group or a community group or go do volunteer work or be part of a homeschool group. Um, do those things because that, you know, those are actually better interactions anyway. They're interactions with different ages of, of people, um, developing complex skills, understanding what your place is in a group of people, re- de- depending on your age. Because when you're just with same age peers, it's a very different thing than if you're with uh, different levels. Yeah. You become a mentor to little littler kids and you become the little kid to the older kids, you know, so it's different. I think, uh, so don't worry about the unsocialization. That's not true. That uh, That's not, I haven't seen anybody yet uh, in the hundreds of people I've talked to that have not let their kids socialize outside their family group. Okay. I, I was actually going to ask you to expand a little bit as well. And you know what, that might be a continuation episode on, you know, the importance of having confidence in your homeschooling. And I think some will probably come back and say, well, how do I get that confidence? When will it come to me? When will I be fully confident? I know for every person it's going to be different. Um, but, you know, what are the tools that I can get to um, to gain confidence? And I think some things are building community, reaching out, finding others that will help support you. Having a mentor, a facilitator is really important. Researching, getting the information and knowledge, uh, are there, you know, seeing other examples in action? Are there other things that you would quickly recommend without us getting into a whole other episode right at this moment? <laughs> no, what you said was good. Just uh, keep reading those things. I, I know uh, your facilitator, if you have one, or your mentor should be a person that can help you instill in confidence in you. If you have a facilitator, and I know they're out there, mm-hmm. that has has created a situation where you're not confident anymore because they criticize you instead of offering helpful suggestions, you need a different one. That's my opinion because I've seen a change in parents too who who switch over to a different facilitator who is actually very supportive. Most of them are, yeah. but there are a couple that have uh, deliberately made people feel a lack of confidence so that they can get them to sign up to teacher-directed education because there's more money in it for the school divisions. Um, I, I'd say, uh, choose a different one. <laughs> I'm available. <laughs> um, but I, so 
gaining confidence is a matter of time, like anything. If you start a new job, the first day you're not confident, you feel very shaky, actually. It's a huge learning curve. You feel very out of sorts. You don't know what your place is. It feels very uncomfortable, especially if it's a job you've never done before. And by a, a week later, you feel better because you're starting to understand where, what your place is and you're starting to understand who you are in this new environment and you're starting to understand how to do what you're supposed to do. And six months down the road, your confidence is totally different than those that first week because now you're fairly certain about it, depending on how complex the job is. I've, I've done jobs that are really hard to learn and it's taking very, very long. I'd say give yourself some time read the books that are recommended in Robin's podcast, <laughs> listen to the podcasts and, and talk to people who are more skilled than you. Cause the way we get better as humans is getting feedback and honest feedback and also, uh, having, having conversations with people so that we can really determine what our opinions and beliefs are. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have someone to hash things out with for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so what are you working on now? We know, obviously, you're a homeschool facilitator. You know, we're building the program, the home education program. What else are you working on? Because I know you've, apart from chickens and making cheese and a few things like that, that you dabble in sheep and things like that, just because, you know, I know Golda, I know what she's up to here. Thanks to Facebook. Yeah. So what else are you working on right now? I'm in the process of writing a book called uh, Demystifying Education. I think that's what it's going to be called. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I read something the other day saying, "Don't title your book until it's done," and it <laughs> pigeonholes you. <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> I noticed in my first year that, uh, as a home education facilitator, that teachers who were confronted with a parent who decided to homeschool would often snap into highly specialized language in order to intimidate the parents and create doubt that they were capable of educating their own children. And I understand why they do that, because they don't know, and they, and they think that they're right. They have a certain philosophy. Well, I think I can fix that. I could, I could teach that specialized language to parents. That was where my book started. Um, I also show parents how to lesson plan and things like that. Like if, if you think that lesson planning is important, then you can read about how to do it and how teachers do it and how, what the difference might be between a teacher plan and a plan for a parent. I also discovered as I was writing the book that I know a bit about how the system works and why people inside it do and say what they do. So I want to demystify that as well. Like what, who makes those decisions and why? And I, I learned a lot as I was writing about philosophy, like what are that that a lot of what drives even a, a board of school trustees is a philosophy. Yeah. So a philosophy, for example, uh, if if you believe that the most important thing is the health and safety of the children, you're going to make very different decisions than if your you know, entire philosophy is uh, based on inclusiveness of all students, because. For example, if you're focused on inclusiveness, the, the idea of expelling a student for bad behavior is is going to be very abhorrent. Right. Whereas if you're focused on safety and and the well-being of, of some students, you're going to probably expel students who are behaving very violently. So philosophy is everything. And so that the book kind of talks a lot, a lot about that. 
about why people do things that they do. Um, after the book is done, I plan to create a Udemy course. Udemy is a platform where you can go and take courses for very little money. And the course is going to be centered on the same concepts, like how to, how to homeschool, but also the philosophies behind it and the theories that uh, are taught in teacher's college so that you know them as well as I do. The teacher talk. The teacher talk. You're going to decode the teacher talk so that when you go and talk to a teacher, you're not going, what is she talking about? And feel stupid (laughs) because that's what they're trying to make you do. They're trying to make you feel stupid and don't let them do that to you. Um, I also, so I, I creating that Udemy course and also there's going to be a website that uh, goes along with those two things. And I just started a Facebook page recently about demystifying education where I just share resources because so many people were scrambling for resources recently with the closing of schools. Uh, so I, I kind of vetted each one of those resources to make sure that I, that they were able to you know, there was lists being given out by so many people, uh, long, long lists of resources. And then I'd go to them and they'd be really complicated or they mm-hmm. need, you'd need teacher, you need to sign in, or it would cost thousands of dollars or whatever. So I, I vetted each one of those resources to make sure that they were either free, easy, that they were free, that they were easy to use, that the website was easy to navigate and that it was actually a valuable thing to offer. So each of those, so demystifying education on the Facebook page. So if we want to get a hold of you and reach you, we can go to Facebook on demystifying education is your page. Uh, If we want to get in contact with you, we can do so through Facebook. Are there any other ways that we can contact you? Because I'll also put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, I have a division email address and for my job and I also have a phone number so I can I can put that in the show notes for you. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really really appreciate it and I know it's going to be huge value for so many people. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. <laughs> So I had some extra questions after Robin and I did the podcast, so I'm here to answer some of them. Um, One of the questions was, anything related to managing the time between kids, including activities outside the home and work and house management? And I thought a lot about this, actually, because I thought, what do I do? (laughs) Because my house management includes having a hobby farm and managing sheep and chickens and all of the other little critters that run around here. So I'd say that I have kind of a vague schedule, but it's really, really flexible. I do do the chores for the sheep and the chickens in the morning and at night. I have uh, a schedule on my fridge of all of the activities that we have planned outside the home. And we work everything else around that. So, I mean, we aside from cleaning the house every Saturday and doing laundry on the weekend, we do, I do the dinner, usually make dinner like at five or, or six sometimes, and honestly, sometimes seven if it's really busy. I mentioned before that I kind of work too much, and that's true. And so I'm constantly trying to find a balance, but uh, I guess that's the answer. I just, I, I kind of have a vague schedule, but it has to be flexible because if there's something that happens or we have to do something outside the home, sometimes some of the other things are not going to get done. Um, for example, my son's schoolwork, like he, he's got a really flexible schedule because he, um, he's being unschooled 
but he does uh, do certain activities every day, like math uh, activities and learning activities, I should say. <laughs> and he does that math whenever he can. So if he sleeps in and then he has to do it later, that's just kind of the way it is. So it's just a really flexible schedule. And I think if you're too rigid in scheduling your life, I, I don't actually, there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I wouldn't be able to cope with that. So I, I need flexibility. So I just, I kind of have lists in my head or sometimes written down of things I have to get done and that then I fit them in wherever I can. So the next question is, my husband left my family seven years ago and I've been homeschooling my three kids, but I have to find a job soon. My question is, what does she do now without selling her soul? <laughs> and that's a, a good question. I think the podcast answered that a little bit about what I do. Um, I thought it was funny, the selling the soul part, because that does feel like that sometimes. Uh, because you're, you're, my job is very, which uh, it's like juxtaposition, like you're one thing, but you're another and it's, it doesn't match and it doesn't line up. So I, I think I would so I mean I I feel lucky that I got this job and I don't know how to suggest that you would get how to get a job like mine where I can work from home and bring my son to where whatever work I do. I also had to find babysitters for those times I can't bring him. Um I think I think what what I would suggest is to try and find something from home. I think um there's lots of books out there about how to start your own business and things like that if you want to if you were interested in something like that but there's also there are jobs that where you can work from home and not those scam jobs that they have that they try to sell you on working from home and that's not really what it is but employers do allow some employees to work from home so i'm not sure what you do or what you can do but i would just start looking and hope and and trying to find something where you can work from home because that's what I did. And I was lucky to find that. The third question was give practical advice for how to survive when your circle is all homeschool moms happily married and don't, and you don't fit in. And I actually really feel that one. <laughs> um, I don't, there's a few single moms in our area that are, are homeschooling parents um, but not very many. Most people are married. They seem to be happily married anyway. I, I, I was divorced myself, so I don't know about the happily part. But anyway, I'm just joking. I feel I. this is a hard question for me to answer because I don't have a lot of friends because I keep moving around every year. So I find it difficult every year to find a new set of friends in the area that I live in. Uh, so I guess I just... I, I'm I'm kind of an introvert, so I don't I don't feel like I need a lot of social interaction to feel happy or feel or feel balanced. And so for me, I'm perfectly happy not going out with friends and not doing things. But if I was in an area where I had my friends around me and they were married, and and most of them are, I just kind of ignore the fact that they're married and just act like they're just a regular person like everybody else <laughs> just, uh, like me that they might have different concerns but so do other single people so I think I think just kind of 
not thinking about that kind of ignoring the fact that they're married and you're not because I think when that someone asks that question they're usually not happy about being unmarried or maybe sometimes there's a bit of a bit of shame that comes with being a single parent like some you feel kind of like people are looking at you and thinking what did you do wrong kind of thing and I I I say that because that's how I feel sometimes not because I think that's how other people should feel but I do think that trying to reframe how you think about it would probably be the best solution to overcome that feeling that you're having when you're with your married friends. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website, imhomeschooling.com or email me directly. Robin at I'mHomeschooling.com. dot com.